Take your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Tremendous chapter. Our Sunday school lesson uh, was from this chapter. And I'll tell you, folks, you cannot plumb all the depths in this gold mine. Uh, there are some things that uh, I would, I can only dwell briefly if I, uh, I started to do a detailed uh, uh, outline and uh, we would only make about four or five verses if I did my outline. So I want to touch on the sevenfold victory that Paul found in accepting Christ. And uh, please understand that uh, uh, you, it, it will help you in every bit of reading of the uh, Gospel of Romans. Um, I call it the Gospel of Romans. It's Paul's great explanation of what salvation is in his life and how it has affected him and how it affects the churches that he's working with. And uh, chapter 8 is like the pinnacle. It's one of those chapters that sums up so much of uh, the gospel. Uh, the, uh, we're going to just stand to read verse 1 through 17. And uh, I may have a second sermon next Sunday when we have the Lord's Supper on the latter part of the chapter. But uh, we'll see. Uh, I want to share with you this. The, there are seven, uh, seven ways that Paul said... Uh, that he won victory in accepting Christ and that we can. So uh, Romans chapter 8, reading verse 1 through 17. I'm reading from the NIV version. Uh, the King James Version reads a little bit differently in some of this, but uh, I'm sure that the meaning is there and it's the same. In uh, Romans 8, verse 1 through 17, it says, <clears throat> Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Let me read that again. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. Your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation 
But it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Let's pray. Father, uh, it's a bright sunny day. We have the word of God. We have the presence of your spirit. And we hunger to know the victory that Paul discovered and the victories that are ours because we trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior because we have the Holy Spirit in us. And we pray that, Father, we might leave here in our attitude and in our living different than when we came. That, Lord, we might just know what it is, this new life that we have, that it overflows within us and we can be so much more than we have been. And Lord, give us assurance. Give us the knowledge that we have the Holy Spirit within us. Therefore, life is not the same and we shouldn't face it the same. And our future is great. And give us the courage to live as you call us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Are you warm today? Just right. That's not good. Are you, are you comfortable enough to sleep? That's not good either. What you need is to attend a, a fall festival. He won't sleep for weeks. It's, uh, those kids uh, only had a few games, but man, they played them over and over. And uh, one of the games I saw, they had to throw the beanbag through the eyes of a pumpkin, the big pumpkin. But uh, toward the end of the night, they're throwing them from the other side out. <laughs> you know, at the kids that are standing there to throw them. It's a fun thing. Uh, <clears throat> too much sugar and uh, too much time. Uh, but I want you to know that in, uh, in Romans chapter 8, I may not get all the way through this message, so I would like to give you this outline. Uh, just uh, there's seven, uh, seven verses that, uh, that speak. And, and the first one is in chapter 1, or chapter 8, verse 1. There's no condemnation in Christ, right? So Paul found that when he trusted Christ, the first thing that he discovered is he is no longer condemned. That his sin, even though he still sins, and he says those verses in chapter 7, that, you know, I, I find myself, even after being saved, he says, I find myself doing the things I don't want to do. And I find myself not doing the things I know I should do. And he says, who can deliver me from this body of death? And the answer is, thank God. Through the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, through the life that comes through Christ, we can be delivered from this body of death. And so he starts this one out by saying, uh, there is no condemnation 
over sin in us anymore. It's been dealt with. Uh, the second is there's no, he has, he has victory over the dominion of sin, the reign of sin. Before he couldn't help but sin, and now he's been set free so he can choose whether he sins or not. Isn't that something? Did you realize that before you trusted Christ, you sinned and you had no choice? Even if you chose to do, if you had, uh, had an activity that you knew was wrong to do, and you says, well, I'll do a better thing. That better thing you chose to do was another form of sin. Because you didn't do anything that could please God. Because without the Spirit of God, no one can please God. That's right. The third thing that he had victory over was the carnal mind. Wouldn't it be great if we could just have control over our thought life? Would you want someone else to have control over your thought life? Say, oh, that'd be worse. But you can't even control your thoughts. How many times do our thoughts, even in church, stray down? Well, I wonder how many tiles there are. Now, is that sin? But if it makes you, it's probably not sin to want to count the tiles. And now I have that desire. <laughs> yeah, I know. Everybody's counting. Now, Pastor, at the end of the sermon, I want you to know we we counted. I don't know why I even asked you. But the whole point is how much control do you have over your thought life? But because you're a child of God, you can have control over your thought life. And uh, it can be submitted not so much to your control as to control to God Himself. Wouldn't it be great if the Holy Spirit controlled what you thought about and how long you dwelt on things and what you came to in your decisions? Is that a possibility? Paul found victory over his thought life. And uh, he also found victory over this mortal body. It's in chapter 8, verse 11 through 13. And uh, the fifth victory that he found is over the bondage of fear. Paul had victory over the bondage of fear. Now, I'll do this as an insert next Sunday, now that you've written all these down. But, uh, and number six, over the suffering and the infirmities. He had victory over that in verse 17 to verse 28. And verse, uh, well, and the seventh victory is over all spiritual foes or enemies. Because you know he asked that great question that has four great questions that have the same answer. And the answer is nobody. He says, who could separate us from the love of Christ? Nobody, you know. And, uh, and you find that in verses 29 to verse 39. So let's go back to verse 1. You've written all those down now. If I lose my place, you can say, you were here, Pastor. All right, and, uh, and verse 8. I told you that the King James Version is different. And the last 10 words of, of the ver uh, verse 1 of chapter 8 in the King James Version says, who did not, who, where it says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It has another part that says, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. I shared it with my Sunday school class. I'll share it with you that the reason that the NIV, the American Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, and others leave that portion of the verse out is because uh, when the King James Version was translated, they, they made a good translation. I'm not criticizing the King James, but they didn't have all 
the manuscripts that you know were buried or hidden uh, uh, and they had discovered some and they were good ones and they translated from what they had but we found there have been new manuscripts or manuscripts that were written much earlier than those and I have a little note in my Bible that says some later manuscripts add that phrase that you find in the King James Version but the earliest most uh, most prized manuscripts that are closer to the time when they were written do not include those words. You do see those same words in verse 4. So it's not that they're untrue. It's just that if you're going to be true to the translation, and we want the translation to be as accurate as it can be, then they have to leave those words out. Uh, most Bibles included at the bottom with a note, right? And you'll see that in the last chapter of Mark and various other places. And it's always important if you're reading the King James and somebody reads from the other, why is that different? Because we need to know these things, and you need to research it, and you can even find out what manuscripts, I mean, if you want to go deep enough in this, you can find out what manuscripts were discovered when, and what the King James was based on, and what the newer translations are based on. But the key thing is accuracy. We want to know what the original Word of God said, and do you know something? We do not have Paul's original letter written in his hand. We don't have the original Gospel of Mark. We don't have the original book of Revelation. There is not one single book in the Word of God that we have the originals. But we'd like to know what the original said. And the only way you can do that is compare copies with copies. You ever play that game telephone when you were a kid? You know, you remember how that worked? I don't remember. Oh, yeah. They, uh, you tell the teacher whispers in the ear of a student some phrase, and they have to whisper it to the next one, and by the time it gets to the last kid, it is so different from what she said because nobody repeats things exactly alike, and they have dialects and everything else, and uh, when it comes around, it's almost humorous how different it is, and there's always other people, and I did that, deliberately add new information. <laughs> I mean, I wanted it to be funny. What the tragedy if it just, uh, you know, it wasn't funny, you know. So you have that too. And uh, anyway, get back to this, the point of no condemnation. Do you understand? Do you remember what life was like before you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Did you walk around feeling guilty? Did you, you, you may not have known or admitted your guilt, to anyone else, but you say, man, I, I'm a mess. I'm not what I ought to be. And I, if they ever find out what I did, you know, people, and so you were constantly in a situation where you felt condemned by, by better people than yourself, people who acted better, by teachers, people in authority. You ever look in your mirror and see a police car and then you <laughs> panic? <laughs> what does that tell you? You're speeding? No, it doesn't have to. You could just be so afraid of police because you don't know what they know. And if they knew everything you know about you, you're guilty. They could arrest you and you could just say, oh, I confess. 
and give them a whole long list of confessions, you know. And that, well, we only pulled you over to tell you that your seatbelt wasn't on. We weren't going to give you a ticket. Oh, well, if that's all, none of that other stuff is true. <laughs> we are guilty. And we, because we were sinners, because we cannot do the right thing before we know Jesus Christ, we have no choice. The flesh wants what the flesh wants. And it doesn't want to wait for it. It wants to do it and do it now. My mom would leave the house saying, Mike, stay out of the cookie jar. And you know what I heard? Cookies. There's cookies in the cookie jar that thou shalt not part. That doesn't apply to me. It's only the little short ones that couldn't reach them. They didn't get any cookies. But mom would tell me that, and I think it was a setup, you know. <laughs> But my point is, before we were saved, we really have no control. We run to, to whatever we want to run to. Self drives us. Self is not always looking out for the good of self. I know you've been on diets before. Do you like it? You like doing that? Discipline in self? Self says, hey, I don't want this. Or it says, I really want that. And you have to say, no self. My son wrote he wrote a cute thing to us that said basically, it was a prayer to God and said, Lord, I haven't sinned at all today. He said, I haven't, I haven't uh, said any bad words. I haven't thought any bad thoughts. I've not treated anyone wrongly and the rest. But in a minute, I'm going to get out of bed. <laughs> and I'm going to need your help. Folks, that's the way we are from the minute we rise to the minute we go to bed without Christ. We are reprobate. We are sinners. We, are, uh, we do wrong things, and we walk around, most of us, all the time. We walked around feeling guilty. It's our fault. Everything could have been our fault. Or if it's not our fault, it's somebody else's fault. But the truth is it can't be all our fault, right? The whole thing is we lived in sin. We felt the guilt of sin. Now, there are a lot of people who try to compensate for sin. In fact, most of our personalities come from an attempt to make up for our sin. Now, you think about it. You were caught in a lie as a child. Probably, right? Some of you weren't caught. That's part of a problem, too. <laughs> but you were caught stealing or you were caught doing something. And you, at that moment, had a choice. You could say, yep, I stole that. Only a fool would do that. Even though they have cameras and they saw you do it. Well, I didn't do that. No, not me. We had somebody in our Christian school pull the fire alarm. And it was, the fire alarm was in the hall where the preschoolers, where the kid, five-year-old kindergarten was, right? And there were three kids that were out there. And, uh, and you know, it was a fake, and we needed a fire drill anyway and stuff. But I wanted, to, I wanted to find out who did it and then warn the, you know, keep an eye on that stuff. And I asked these three children who were out in the hall. And uh, the one said, no, I didn't do it. And the other one said, I didn't do it. And the other one said, oh, I can't reach it. <laughs> Guess who did it? <laughs> the one who couldn't reach it. That's why he, he the others just said what they didn't do, you know. But this one, it was obvious who did it. Well, I can't even reach it, see? Uh, have you ever done that? Done something very foolish to cover up sin, which is obvious that you did? There are some people who try to just 
cry. Oh, I'm so sorry I did it. I didn't mean to do it. It will never happen again. And I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll keep everyone else from pulling that fire alarm if you want. You know, and you, you, there, you are the person you are because of the way you deal with sin. And you try, if you're like most of us, you try to control whatever you can about how people think of you. You don't want to be known as a sinner. You don't want to be known as a thief or a liar. So you still sin. You still steal stuff. And you still lie. But you cover it up. You say, well, I did it for the greater good. I knew Johnny here was going to steal that. And I didn't want him to get in trouble. So I stole it for him. <laughs> it's really a good motive in my heart that I stole. Because somebody would have stolen it anyway. It's actually your fault for leaving it out there. Where other people could get it. Folks. Paul says, in Christ, he says, I have no condemnation. It isn't, he's not saying I've never sinned. He is saying that my sin no longer brings me guilt. Even if I sin after I'm saved, I don't have the same feeling of guilt because I can stand before God and God has declared me not guilty. He has me declared not guilty because Jesus died on the cross and paid for my sin and paid the price for my sin and you can't punish somebody twice for the same crime. It's been forgiven. It's been dealt with. The guilt, you do not stand before God after you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. Your sins are forgiven and you do not stand before God guilty anymore. That's a victory. To overcome the guiltiness, the, the feeling of guilt. How many of you are driven by guilt still? You say, well, I trusted Christ a long time ago. Paul says you can have victory over that. You can realize just how forgiven you are in Christ. And you don't have to walk around being guilty all the time. Ask the forgiveness. Confess your sin and you'll have the feeling of innocence also. Once it's put under the blood of Christ. Once you agree with God that it's sin, you no longer have to commit that sin. You've tried to correct the flesh. Now, is the flesh still present with you? Do you still sin after you're saved? That's not getting a big argument. But uh, the truth is, yes, we still sin. Just like Paul. We don't do what we want to do. And we don't. We, we do what we don't want to do. And it seems we need deliverance. And every day, Jesus Christ lives in us to deliver us from our sin. We don't have to sin. We still can and there's still a price connected with sin if we do, but we don't have to. I'm no longer put as a slave to sin. I'm delivered. Second thing, you see why I gave you all those points first? Second thing is found in verse 2 through 4, and it says, for example, by law... Wait, I'm in chapter 7. Let's go to 8. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man uh, to be uh, a sin offering. And so what is Paul saying? He says that the law of the spirit of life far greater than the law of sin and the law of death. Adam was born to be a companion to God. Sin entered the world and slew Adam. Suddenly the law of sin and death is present. It's two laws. One, you sin. 
You can't help it. You're a sinner. You're born that way. You're going to die that way. But there's this thought too that sin brings forth death. So you're doomed to die. Are Christians doomed to die? Physically? Yeah. We're still in this sinful body. We're in this flesh. We live in this flesh. God could have translated you. The minute you were saved, he could have given you your glorified body and uh, made you sinless. But you wouldn't be comfortable here on earth. You'd want to be in heaven where he is, where all the others are. But he needs you here. He kept you here so you can show what it means when Christ lives in someone. And you're dealing with sin and you're learning things. And it's the struggle against sin that is helping you develop the character. It's the deliberate, I'd say, choice to choose to serve the living God rather than the flesh. You say, well, why doesn't he just make it not a choice? Why doesn't he make us into uh, robots or automatons that we absolutely have to just do what God says? Well, you won't grow from that. All of a sudden, that's mind control. That's, uh, and he doesn't want that. He wants individuals who have the potential to sin, who deliberately deny sin and choose to follow him. Now, a lot of us choose to sin and try to make it like a, a gift to God. You know, that saying that it's easier to get forgiveness than it is to get permission. What have you just done? You've decided, I'm going to sin and then seek forgiveness afterward. What a fool would think to do that, and yet <laughs> we all do that, don't we? And there's a truth there that, boy, it takes forever to get permission. And sometimes they won't give it at all. But they're quick to forgive. So, you see how the flesh works? Tries to reason things. And we think sometimes by doing things the wrong way, we can please God. And what is abundantly clear in this passage is that no flesh can please God. Nothing we do in our own strength and by our own imagination and by our own choices pleases God. We have a whole world full of people who think by doing moral acts they're pleasing God. They, that by being sacrificial in their giving or giving to some world hunger project or anything, that, well, that's got to put a smile on God's face. Folks, if you haven't trusted Christ, if you've not been delivered by the Spirit of God, you cannot, even by the best of human acts, please God. No flesh is justified in His sight. It's all ungodly, unrighteous, and unwelcome in the sight of God. And yet we have all kinds of flesh. We have the, the flesh of the religious flesh. It's the religious folks that are all about making good rules and keeping up the house of God. We can even have Baptist flesh, you know. We have all of this work that we do for God. We're going to meet so we can decide, you know, what uh, we're going to do on, on God's behalf. And God never asks us to work on His behalf. He wants us to work with Him. He wants to do the work, and he wants to do it through you and with you. But he doesn't want you to do it for him. The most frustrating thing about being a Baptist. You know, somebody said that they, Mary was a little lamb. She should have been a sheep. She joined the local Baptist church and died from lack of sleep. <laughs> you can work in the flesh thinking that you're doing a work of God. 
not at his leadership, not in he he had no, you know, no no emphasis to do this, but you're doing it for him. And you can die having done nothing to please God. Better that you read the word of God, and you hear the voice of God, and you do what God bids you do. That's too simple, preacher. We want to do great and mighty things for God, believe me, if you'll heed the voice of God and you'll obey even the smallest statements that he tells you do, you will be doing a great work for God. Somebody asked a man that was pushing a wheelbarrow. He had bricks in it and stuff, and they say, what are you doing? He said, I'm pushing bricks in a wheelbarrow. I, you know, we're taking them to the guy who lays the bricks, and, and that's my job, and that's what I do. And they ask another man who was doing the same thing. And he says, I'm building a cathedral. And he's doing the same thing, just pushing bricks. But he could see it from God's point of view. He was doing an important work. Some of you people are going to be asked to work over at the new building, putting drywall, mud on there, maybe washing out all the tools, pulling nails. That's what I love to do. I just, but getting rid of nails, I hate to do that. you know. But uh, the whole thing is uh, usually that's where they put me when I asked if I could work on the roof. Oh, no, you stay down here. You, know, you pull nails. Yeah. Uh, but it's a terrible job if that's what your job is. But if I'm helping to do the project, if I'm part of a bigger thing, then I'll do that. Christians, we are delivered from the drudgery uh, and the dominion of sin. Sin says uh, that we have to do everything for ourselves. We have to please ourselves. We're delivered from that. We no longer just have to please ourselves. We can choose, but better to choose to please the Lord. So he's delivered from the, the, the rule of sin in his life. He does still sin, but he doesn't have to. Make sense? Praise God. The third one, he has sin over his, uh, I mean, he has victory over his thoughts. Verse 5 through 10. Let's look at that. It says, for when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies. So the fruit we bore brought death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way. What's he saying? We had no choice before. We, we couldn't help our thoughts. Uh, the sinful passions that were aroused by the law, that very thought that God says thou shalt not commit adultery actually is death to us. Because when Jesus interpreted it, he said even the very thought of it is sin, just as bad as the doing of it. And it kills us. It makes us all sinners. This, the law cannot bring you life, and the law does nothing but kill us. It points out that none of us are good enough, can live well enough. But what about the law of life that comes through Jesus Christ? It says none of us are so evil that grace cannot save us. That grace is greater than all of our sin. And what God has done to provide eternal life was enough to pay the price and to help make us and change us so sin could no longer rule over us. And so we have this thought that our thoughts don't have to be that way. That there is a greater and higher calling that we can think the thoughts of God. We can be moral, truly moral, even when people aren't watching. We can think the right things. 
We can't do it in our own, but Christ liveth in us to help us. Here's the whole bottom line of all of this. You see, when you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit comes into us, that the Holy Spirit is really Christ in us, the hope of glory, the one that gives us the hope of the future and the one that tells us the will of God. Do you have the Holy Spirit in you? What's the sure sign that you're a Christian? Rolling on the ground and saying silly words. Isn't that it? Being filled with the Holy Spirit is what some would tell you. But what's the sure sign? Are you any different today than the day before you trusted Christ? There are some people, I think, that are not saved that think they are. Why would I say that? Cannot Jesus save everyone who comes unto him? Yes, he can. But not everyone who comes to him comes to him. Does that make sense? There, there's a great amount of pressure. At least there was when I was a teenager. If you attend a Baptist church, the pastor's always given an invitation. He's always trying to put pressure on you to conform to the way of the Baptist. I know we don't deliberately say that, you know. There are some churches that deliberately say it. Now, if you're saved, you need a haircut like this. Right, not mine. Mine's a little long over the years. So. Uh, and, and there are some who say, if you're saved, then you're going to dress in a suit and a tie. You're going to wear good clothes to church. If you're saved, then your outward appearance will give evidence that Christ is in your heart. You won't have those tattoos. You won't have those holes in your, I mean, we all got holes, but not in your ears and in your nose and all that stuff. That you'll stay away from those evil things and then you'll be saved. Folks, I got news for you. You can, you can come in looking like a Baptist. You can come in talking like a Baptist. You can say the word praise the Lord. It doesn't make you saved. You can dress like a Christian. You can quote Christian books. You can just, somebody said that coming to church and learning those things doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage turns you into a car. There has to be a transformation. And usually when the transformation comes, they don't automatically turn into, you know, Jack Hiles. Never mind, you don't know who Jack Hiles is, but Jack Hiles actually had invitations where barbers were down in the front and you could come and get a proper haircut for a Christian. I got to tell you. That the Holy Spirit tells you what's more important is your thought life and your heart. And God looks on the inward appearance, not the outward appearance. And we make such a big deal of being a Christian on the outside and using the right words. When all the time the real thing that separates the lost from the saved is the presence of Jesus Christ in the hearts of those who are saved. If you don't have his presence, it doesn't matter how many professions you made. It doesn't matter how often you've gone to church or how many offerings you give. Knowing Christ is what brings you the life of Christ. Knowing Christ is what gives you the home in heaven. Having Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Having the possession of Christ. You possess him and he possesses you. That's what saves you. Not all reading the good book in the world is going to make you into a Christian if you don't have the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now I know uh, this was not the topic of my sermon. <laughs> but it's the reason that Paul won the victory. He was one way 
very religious, knew the word of God, very zealous for God, and he sought Christians. When his name was Saul, he sought out the Christians. Not so he could join them, so he could take them to jail. He sought to serve the living God, thinking that these were a bunch of heretics, and they were, uh, you know, like Christ, that they were blaspheming God by claiming that Jesus was the Son of God. And he really thought that he was keeping the law and he was good in all the points that made a good Pharisee. And he was careful even about things that weren't written in the law. He even tithed spices and little things. And, and he sought after all sorts of ways so he could be righteous. And he was not happy. He was guilty. And uh, when he met Jesus Christ in person on the Damascus Road, he appeared and, and there was a great light. And Jesus spoke from heaven and said, Saul, why do you persecute me and he saw the risen Christ and he realized hey this is for real Jesus is alive it's not some fairy tale it's not some testimony of a bunch of crazy fishermen I've heard a bunch of crazy fishermen I don't believe half of what they say <laughs> it's real because I met him and from then on, Saul's life, he even changed his name to Paul, and he had a mission, and it was totally different from his life before he met Jesus Christ. Folks, if you cannot look at your life and see a before and an after, if it's all like before and then another before, if it's the same old life, but now you spend your time in religious activities, now you eat with a different type of fishermen and hunters, right? If there is no after as far as your thought life, if there is no after as far as your, your, your speech, if there is no after, if there is no difference from the day you say you trusted Christ, if you're the same person you were, then you have not met Jesus Christ. Can the holy God come and live in your heart and not change you? You say, well, you say that the Spirit lives in my heart. I don't say it. The Apostle Paul says it, and he says it many times. There is a verse that says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? The dwelling place of the Holy Spirit? Folks, you say, well, can I be a Christian and not have the Holy Spirit? Because, you know, I've seen people who say they have the Holy Spirit, and they're all the time saying praise the Lord and hallelujah, and they're talking in different languages, and they're blaming the Spirit for all sorts of crazy things that they do. Folks, sometimes the expression of the Holy Spirit is actually a counterfeit thing sent by Satan to confuse Christians and to confuse lost people. And not everyone who says they're filled with the Holy Spirit is filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, you can tell if it's really the Holy Spirit that that person will never take any credit for it. Never get any glory out of it. Because the only thing that the Holy Spirit does when he takes control, and, and you have those times in your life when the Holy Spirit just, just takes control to accomplish the will of God, and, and it's a good thing, right? There are times we may stand before judges. We won't know what to say, but the Bible tells us not to be afraid because the Holy Spirit dwells within you, and he'll give you the answer in times like that. 
I've seen people who had a word to say and they got up and they didn't know how they were going to say it. And the most amazing thing, both to them and to us, is that they knew what to say and they said it clearly when they don't even talk clearly when you talk to them normally. But the Spirit does that sort of thing. And He always, when the Holy Spirit is working, He always gives glory to Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit has truly spoken, you will not come away saying, oh, what a marvelous pastor, what a marvelous preacher. You will say, oh, what a marvelous Savior. You see, and so many times, we take the substitute. We think it means you need to dance around and sing for joy. Sometimes we do that. We don't do it because it's our nature, although I don't mind jumping around a bit, you know. But in Baptist circles, it's not dancing, okay? It's rhythmic worship <laughs> movements. <laughs> All right, with that said, uh, forgive me, Father. Uh, <laughs> Verse 11 through 13, Paul had victory over the mortal body, and we should also. Uh, 11 says, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. I think from the time you're born, you have a fear of death. Actually, that's when the clock starts ticking towards your death, doesn't it? No death till you're born. If you are born, right? And you're getting closer to death even now. Don't get scared. Another hour of your life is gone, maybe an hour and a half. It's gone from your life. The whole thing is this. For some people, it's the fear of death that motivates everything they do. One of the things that fear does is make us deny that we're afraid. Isn't that crazy? You ever see somebody with a bumper sticker that says, no fear? I'm afraid of them. <laughs> because that's not normal. They've taken little baby children who shouldn't know fear. And they built a, on a step. They built out a plastic step out there. And you know those baby children will go to the edge of the step crawling? And they won't go any farther. How do they know? Somebody sit down and say, now listen, you see the, the board go down like this? It's going to hurt you. They have knowledge from the day they're born about heights and stuff. And they know to be afraid. And sometimes, folks, if you're not afraid, you're just plumb crazy. But the whole point is fear of death is not an abnormal fear. It's in most of us. But he says that in Christ, we do not need to fear death. Why? Why would he say such a thing? Do you know the great mystery of death? What happens? How do you die? Where did you go? I've been with people who were talking to me one minute, and then they're gone. And the body suddenly turns into just a, a body, and there's no movement. I look, and sometimes I can see in people who just died, I think I see them still breathing. I mean, I look for that. It looks to me like they're breathing in and out, but they're dead. There's no life there. And you sit there and you say, well, where did they go? 
Did they just, is that all there was? This short lifetime and then that's the end of them? The Bible tells us much more than that. Through the word of God we know that they live on. Whether in heaven or hell, but their soul lives on. That this body, according to the word of God, is the temporary dwelling of who we are. This is the old cottage. The mansion's waiting on the other side for those who knew Christ. And somebody said that the, 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 the end of the road is merely for Christians the bend in the road. There's another life beyond it, a life that's really life living, a life that is not limited anymore to this physical body, but to the glorified body. The truth is that Paul says, I no longer fear about the, this mortal body because I have another body. I have another place. And in some ways, when he started to talk about death later on, he says, for me to die is better. It's gain. I know you need me here, he says, but for me to die, that is gain. Folks, can you look at death as a reward? Opportunity? Could you imagine having a ticket in your hand to go to China? I know some of you want to go to China. Some of you, oh no, what did I do wrong? You're going to send me to China, you know. But imagine having that ticket and all these things keep coming up. Somebody try, wants you to do this. Oh, we need to put, alphabetize your books, Pastor, before you go, you know. We got to get that done. So you need to delay the trip. Could you imagine wanting to go somewhere and not being able to go? For a Christian who knows if God showed us clearly what lie ahead of us, we'd all want to die. If we could see it as Paul saw it, that it's graduation day. It's the day when we're walking with Jesus, when we are in the body we were meant to have, and we are all the time with the one that we love. Folks, that's what heaven is. And if we really saw it clearly, we wouldn't want to remain in these bodies. So God gives us this. We see like through a glass, darkly. We, don't, we see images. We see glimpses. And you can see it in the lives of transformed lives about you. All that God has done and wants to do in people's lives. What he wants to do for you. And the home that he has in heaven waiting for you. But you have a job to do. That's why you're here. Paul, Paul won victory over his mortal body. He said, I'm no longer indebted to my flesh. And uh, in John 14, 1 through 3, it was written that Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again so that you may be where I am. And true believers are going to die physically but they'll never die spiritually. So death no longer meant the same thing to the Apostle Paul. The fifth bondage over which he had victory was the victory over fear. You have a lot of fears in your life. Think little concerns that turn into big concerns. Weren't you scared of your preschoolers when first they, you know, started dealing with animals and things like that and stuff? And uh, the first day you heard your daughter or your son got their driver's license... Suddenly a knife of fear strikes you. And then when they didn't come home and they said they'd come home, all of a sudden you find as a mother or a father of teenagers, fear is all about you. And it's not fear for yourself. It's fear for your children and the impact. And boy, you thought they could get in trouble when they were kids. When they become young adults, man, Katie, bar the door, you know. The trouble is all about them. And when they have children, well, that brings a whole nother set of concerns for the grandparents, doesn't it? 
And they got to pay for their raising too, is what my mom said about us. Every time we call her about a problem with our kids, she started laughing. Because <laughs> she knew, you know, they're acting just like us. And boy, oh boy, we needed to know. But uh, the point is that, that we don't have to be afraid. Well, we'll cover some of these other ones tonight in the evening service. And uh, I invite you to come. We're going to go all the way to Romans 28. And we're going to, I mean, we're going to. To verse 28. <laughs> Join us. But understand this. The key thing that makes you saved. The only thing. That sets you apart. Is not your goodness. Not your change of clothes. It's not even your new thought life. It is the presence. Of the Holy Spirit. In your life. The chief hindrance to becoming the Christian you need to be is the choices that we make in regard to who's going to be in charge of our life today. Does that mean we can be Christians and be pretty sorry Christians because we still want ourselves to be in charge? Yes, it does. The real question, the most important question is are you sure, do you know beyond any shadow of a doubt that the Holy Spirit lives in you. The day you trusted Christ is the day that he would have come into your life and he'll never leave. And we have this strong assurance in the word of God that the work that God has begun in you is going to continue. But by our own choices, we can make the work proceed quickly or we can slow it down to a crawl. And the tragedy is many times... We can see the blessings that would come if we surrendered, and yet we still hold on to the things that bring us death. It is normal for Christians to sin, but are you a Christian? Have you trusted Christ, and you know you have? Have you accepted him as your personal Lord and Savior? Are you sure that if you were to die today, you'd wake up in heaven? If you know that you have Christ, then you know you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit-filled life is the life that pleases God. Will you surrender self so that you might have Christ? That's a choice you can't just make one day for all time in the Christian life. You need to first trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're saved, and you're secure. As far as that goes, your future is good. But for your life afterwards, it's a choice we have to make every day. Who's going to be in charge today? Whose will will this body be in obedience to? And if it's our own will, we need God's help. You know, th there's a final truth I want to share that it, it surprised me. That we don't even worship God unless the Spirit brings us to do so. We think sometimes, oh, I remember that hymn, and we start to sing. And I find that, that when you remember a hymn, you ought to sing it, or at least hum it, or something. Because in many ways, music is the first thing that the Holy Spirit uses to bring us into the presence of God. It's a reminder, and... Uh, as a pastor, one time I, I was a bivocational. I drove a truck, and every Sunday, 
we would sing the hymns and stuff. And boy, in small congregations, they don't sound like, you know, the big choirs or anything else. And sometimes the voices that stand out the most are the ones you wish wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, truthfully, you know, it wasn't a great bevy of, uh, of songbirds. Most of them were crows a lot of times, you know. But it's, it's as you begin to sing those hymns yourself, your spirit sings them. I think the spirit sings them before you do. And as you join in, all of a sudden, here you are in the cab of a truck. You're 100 miles from home, and you're present with the Holy Spirit and with God, and you're having a worship service. God has spoken to me in the cab of a truck so many times during the week. <laughs> Isn't that a surprise? Worship God on a Monday? Oh, my. That's when it's real. That's when it's most meaningful. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Are you saved? If you think there's any doubt, if you need to talk about this further or you want to know more, I shake hands at the door every Sunday. All you got to do is tell, Pastor, I want to talk, and we'll set a time. If you know that you're lost, but you believe that Jesus is willing to save you, that he is able to save you, and today you want to be saved, that's what the invitation is for. We don't even want you to wait to shake hands with the pastor at the back door. We don't know how much time you got. And being in the process of accepting Christ, if you die in that process, you can still die and go to hell. You see, it's not until Christ lives in you that you are safe and you are saved. So be sure it's true. Of all things, be sure that's true. We all ask the Holy Spirit, Father, with your spirit, we ask you to move in our hearts that first we might examine ourselves and see if we are saved or not saved. And secondly, if we are saved, that we will see who's in charge of our life. And we might understand that the works we do need to be done by the spirit through us and not us for you. And Father, we pray that we too might win the victories that Paul has won through his word of God, through the presence of your spirit and his faith to believe your promises. And we pray that his victory may be ours, that we too might have all of these. And Lord, speak to the hearts of these in need today, these who are serious enough and honest enough to examine themselves and find that you're not in charge. We pray that they will come. And they will accept you as their Lord and their Savior. And Father, if they're sure that they're saved, but they're not living for you, don't let us have any rest or peace until we've settled the issue of who's in charge in our life. And Father, help us to commit to you to do the things the Spirit leads us to do and to throw aside the things that come out of our own will. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.